Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum, and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Welcome to episode number 133. Extremely, extremely excited to have on Lisa Bluter, the head women's basketball coach at the University of Iowa, the dean of the Big Ten coaches. Coach, when you when you got the job at Iowa, did you ever think that would be rolling off of people's lips, the dean of, of the Big Ten? Uh, no. First of all, Marty, thanks for having me, but you're, you're absolutely right. That would have, I would have never dreamed that. I signed a five-year contract back in 2000, and I thought, if I can only make it five years, <laughs> that's what my... <laughs> That's uh hey hey it worked out well it's worked out well for you it's worked out well for everybody and and you've done a terrific job and really excited to talk some hoops with you today here uh so but before we get talking uh before we really dive into the conversation we of course want to thank our founding sponsor uh COSAC Chiropractic located 144th and Maple here in Omaha coaches if you have an athlete who is struggling with balanced neck or spinal issues or if you're struggling with balanced neck or spinal issues yourself go see COSAC Chiropractic Check out their practice at CosacChiro.com. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter handle, so be sure to follow us there. Obviously, you're listening to this podcast. Go to iTunes, download, rate, review, give us five stars, help us get word out uh, so that we can move up in the rankings and the ratings and help as many coaches as we can to hone their craft. Questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me at pen and a napkin at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out a pen and a napkin. Dot com. Coach, uh, just uh, again, your, your resume it really speaks for itself. As I was researching for uh, this today, you, you've done so many great things. Like we just talked about, the Dean of Big Ten Coaches, uh, the three-time uh, Big Ten Coach of the Year, uh, f- four-time uh, Missouri Valley Champion when you were at Drake, uh, 800-plus wins in your career now. Uh, one of four. Uh, you are an exclusive uh, club. Do you know who? Uh, do you remember who the other three are, Coach? Well, I do because uh, I get reminded of it constantly <laughs> by my assistant recruiting pitches. So, yes, I do. Okay, uh, Gino Ariema, Tara Vanderveer, and uh, you know that that one jumps out for a lot of people. Uh, but then Gary Blair is is the is the fourth member, the four Musketeers of the 800 Win Club here. So, uh, coaches at camp today uh, got a bunch of bunch of kids running around Iowa City and, and working on their game and having a good time. So I really appreciate your time from stepping away from camp. Um, you know, normally, coach, we have people, or when I have people on, I just have them go through their background. But uh, it, it's pretty easy for folks to to go to the various bi- uh, bios that you have out there. So we're we're going to kind of skip that uh, portion of of the podcast, and, and let's just kind of jump right into your career. Uh, you, you started out at St. Ambrose, um, and and you had tremendous success there. You had some really really good uh, teams with the Fighting Bees of St. Ambrose University. Uh, you know what? Uh, what was really positive? Uh, maybe starting out as a head coach at a small school at a small college at the NAI level. How did that help develop your coaching philosophy and gave you a really good foundation for the next moves in your career? Yeah, that is a great question, Marty. I, you know, when you're coaching um, in the '80s at a smaller school like that, uh, an NAI school, you really you really wear all hats. And I think that's what was the most beneficial to me is that, you know, I was a really young coach. I was 24 years old. I was one year out of college. I had been married for a couple of weeks. And here I am in this position as head women's basketball coach at uh, St. Ambrose. It was college back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you have to wear all hats, I mean, you really, okay, you got to figure your offensive and defensive philosophy, but you're also driving the van. You're also scheduling all your opponents and hiring your officials and running your camps and washing, uh, you know, the camp uniforms and sweeping the floors. So I think it really humbles you a little bit, but it also, you know, I think if you get through something like that on the job training like that, um, it, there's no better way to learn. I mean, it's like a real-life practicum experience. And so I was very, very fortunate to be hired at, at St. Ambrose University in 1984. Mm-hmm. What uh, I, I'm sure you probably had some teaching in there as well. You probably had to teach some courses. 
I did. I also taught, uh, I taught fitness. I taught racquetball and I was uh, assistant athletic director to Jim Fox, who was a kind of a storied legend football coach from the quad city area. Okay. All right. Uh, is there part of you that kind of misses that small college, that, that small, I mean, uh, that, that small school atmosphere and kind of just the, the simplicity of it to a degree? Um, you know, it's funny. Um, the small colleges, you know, I, I all thought when I retired from basketball, I would be an athletic director at Division three school or an NAI school because I, I like what you said, the simplicity of it. You know, kids are there usually for the joy of participating and not for NIL deals and all these other things that we're dealing with today. But, you know, I, I love my progression that I've been able to have, um, and I appreciate every level that I've been at um, NAI, you know, mid-major division one and, and power five division one. And honestly, you know, you coach the same. I don't care if you're coaching division three, division two, whatever you coach with the same intensity and desire and your kids are there for the, you know, they want to play the game they love. So the coaching aspect really doesn't change. It's the responsibilities that change and how you manage people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that that people think that if they're at the University of Iowa, that the the winning or losing hurts or is more joyful than it is at the high school level. But it, it it's all the same. The the, uh, the when you lose a tough game, I'm sure you're still staring at your bedroom ceiling just the same way I am uh, when you when you lose a tough game. You know, till up teen hours in the in the early hours of the morning, and and I think people kind of lose track of of that part at it of it that that everyone at every level if you're in this at any any level except for maybe you know the first second grade you know type of thing but if you're a varsity basketball coach or if you're a division one power five head coach that that stings and there uh when you lose and there's great joy when you win it's just there's a little bit different type of player a little bit of type of different type of environment that you're in during those situations don't you think coach I completely agree. If you're a competitive person and you're competing at the high school or above level, you know, you're you're there because you love to compete, you love to teach kids, and it hurts no matter what level you're at. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So let's continue to talk about your progression. You went from St. Ambrose uh, NAIA school. Uh, I'm an NAI guy. I went to Briarcliff in Sioux City, so Catholic school just on the other side of the state there. And uh, you went from St. Ambrose as a coach to to Drake University. And so what was kind of the progression? What were some of the adjustments? Uh, like you said, coaching the game is the same. But what were some of the adjustments going from a small college level to a, a mid-major Division One program that, that you had to make some adjustments to, uh, whether it's time management or media responsibilities or the recruiting, what, whatever it may be? What were some of the things that you had to learn about the new job? Yeah, and you know when I went to um, from St. Ambrose, you know I had some great players. I had Robin Becker on my team, who's Robin Pinchon now, who's the head coach at the uh, University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I had some really good players, and I honestly think I had a little more talent at St. Ambrose than I did when I <laughs> my first year at Drake, um, where I didn't have very many bodies. And the only exception there was Jan Jensen, who was an All American type player, uh, and I had her for one year. Um, but when I went to um, Drake University after six years at St. Ambrose, and I was 29 years old then, um, I think I interviewed on my 29th birthday, if I remember right. Maybe it was my 30th birthday. But the, really the biggest differences there were media attention, um, you know, having weekly media conferences, and uh, we had a weekly television show back then. Um, and then also managing people. I mean, I have like one part-time assistant at St. Ambrose, and now you go to um, managing an SID and an athletic trainer and three assistant coaches. And, and so it's, it's like management of people was, was probably my most, you know, my biggest adjustment. And also just recruiting at that level, like learning what level do I really need to have to compete at this high of a level uh, and so recruiting is a different animal at the Division One level than mm-hmm. it is at the NAI level. It's just a lot more time-consuming. It's a lot more cutthroat, um, and it's all just an absolute necessity to your success. Mm-hmm. You you had said, and I again I was going through through things here for the for this episode. 
uh, uh, Vivian Stringer uh, left for Rutgers in 1995, and you had applied for the job, and obviously you, you didn't get it. I believe it was uh, Angie Lee that got the job after Coach Stringer left uh, to go to New Jersey. And, and you had said that, you know, in some ways it was kind of a blessing in disguise that you didn't get the job in 1995 and you waited until 2000 or as, as circumstances came about, you didn't get the university of Iowa job until the year 2000. Uh, what was it about those five extra years at Drake that gave you the necessary experiences, the next necessary lessons? Uh, how did you develop as a coach in those second five years at Drake university that you felt like in hindsight helped prepare you for a, a job like the university of Iowa? Yeah, absolutely. I was a better coach in 2000 than I was in 1995. And it's just, I mean, five more years of really valuable experience and many more opportunities to play in the NCAA tournament. In 1995, we'd only played in one NCAA tournament. I'd only coached two NCAA tournament games. Um, and then by 2000, I think, you know, we'd been invited to four tournaments and, um, you know, played multiple games in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, just learning more about our craft and uh, learning more about recruiting. Um, that was really, I think, the biggest thing is just having just more experience. I also became a mom in that time. In 1997, I, we had our first child. And I think that changed me as a coach a little bit. I think it made me a little more compassionate, a little more patient. Um, and I think those are all pretty good qualities that coaches need at, at this level. Mm-hmm. I was actually having that conversation with one of our coaches this morning about, you know, your kids go through experiences. And I, and I do think that changes your philosophy, your outlook, what your mission is as a coach. Is, is, is that something that, that you've gone through, Lisa? Absolutely. I think, you know, when you have children, it just makes you think about things a little bit differently. Um, you think about it from their perspective a little bit more instead of just your perspective. Uh, and I think that just makes you more well-rounded and, you know, just or even surrounding yourself with different people on your staff. Um, you know, I just think it makes you a little bit more well-rounded. Mm-hmm. Well, well, speaking of staff, you've, you've been really fortunate. You mentioned uh, Jan Jensen as, as a player, uh, but she has been with you an awful long time as an assistant coach. Uh, it, how, I don't want to say easy because, because no coaching job is easy, how much easier has has having Jan there as as long as you've had her there? Uh, how much easier has that made your job to have somebody that you really trust that has been through so many experiences with you? But she's probably going to challenge your thinking. She's probably you know she's probably willing to tell you no, that's a bad idea when when maybe somebody else wouldn't. Uh, just kind of what is that? Uh, you know how important is that to the development of your program to have somebody. Uh, a solid assistant coach, uh, somebody that, that is your right-hand woman to, to help you uh, navigate the programs that you've been associated with together? You know, I, Marty, I think you said it makes it easier, and I wouldn't disagree with you. I think it does make it easier. It's so much more um, rewarding and when you have people that you trust on your side and that experience, that consistency. Um, and it, it's not only Jan who's been um, coaching with me for over 30 years, but it's been Jenny Fitzgerald as well who's on our staff that worked for me for eight years at Drake before coming over here. So now 30 years with her, it's you know 12 years or 14 years with Abby Emmert who played for us and graduated in 2008. And then she has stayed with us on staff or Catherine Reynolds who graduated in 2016 and has been on our staff ever since. And so, I mean, it's that consistency. I think that speaks to recruits is when they see the consistency of a staff and that longevity of a staff. And the reason why I think it makes it better is, first of all, that trust is built. It, it takes time to build trust. You know, it takes time. It takes experiences to build that trust. And um, there's obviously a, a great amount of trust within us. And, you know, the organization where, you know, we know what everybody's going to do. We know what people's strengths and weaknesses are. And so the organization of our program is, is pretty good. And also just not having to hire people and train people. That is an incredibly time consuming yes. thing. 
You know, I think it takes a good year within your program or more for somebody that if you hire an assistant coach for them to learn how you like to recruit, what talent level you like to recruit, how you run your practices, your offensive and defensive philosophy. I think it takes a complete year plus to do that. So if you're replacing a, a staff person every three years, you know, you're spending a, a lot of your time really without the services of that person completely. So I am, um, I am very, very thankful to have the loyalty of the women that I've had on my staff. And, and I, uh, like I say, I think the trust, because you spend so many hours in this together. And when you really care about the people you're around, when they're like a family to you, you know, the highs are that much higher and the lows don't sting quite as much. A pen and a napkin university videos are just another way that a pen and a napkin can help you become a better coach. Our university video library is constantly expanding with topics ranging from interviewing for a job to full court defense to 25 universal truths about coaching. Our university videos will help you round out your skill set as a coach and help you hone your craft. Videos are $10 a piece with bundling options available. To order, you can DM me on Twitter. Send me an email at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com or order from our website, a pen and a napkin.com. Be sure to check out the a pen and a napkin video library. Coach, we are recording this on Thursday, uh, June 23rd, literally the 50 day anniversary of the passage of, of, of Title IX. And, and that has been such a, a huge. Development in, in education and and obviously the in women's athletic that's the biggest thing that people point to is is women's athletics and the growth in women's athletics but but there's many many other ripple effects to Title IX than just sports there's there's so many other opportunities that have been ha- have been allotted for for women and you know it truly is one of the most progressive and influential pieces of legislation that has been passed in in modern uh, United States political history. And and we just so happen to be recording on the anniversary of that, the 50th anniversary. Uh, just from your perspective, you, uh, Title IX passes uh, in, in 1972. Uh, that's probably about when you were really starting to get active in, in athletics. And, and, and in Iowa, it was a little bit different. And we'll get into the history of Iowa girls basketball. That was already kind of put into place. But in, in other areas, just, just how much... Have you seen with the progression of, of women's athletics over the last 50 years and the effect of Title IX, uh, you know, what kind of, what has been your firsthand experience as you've grown into your job and everything that you've done and how big of a game changer, changer that Title IX has been uh, for women's athletics? I, I feel like I am like the person that has benefited the very most or seen the most change from Title IX because you're right. I, I graduated from high school in 1979, and, you know, in high school, you really didn't notice a whole lot difference between the men's and the women's sports because in Iowa, like you said, we had a six-on-six game versus five-on-five, so we were playing completely different games. And like you said, we're going to talk about that maybe a little bit later, but it really didn't notice differences until I went to college. And when I went to college, I noticed uh, uh, I played at Northern Iowa how different the men's and the women's teams were treated. And it was unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, how different it was. And this was, you know, now we're getting 10 years past the passage of Title IX where this says it's not supposed to be happening anymore. Uh, and here we are 50 years later now, and things have come night and day from where they were in 1972. I mean, absolute night and day from women's opportunities then to now, uh, support of women's programs from then to now. But I also know that my dear mentor, Dr. Christine Grant, who was uh, probably the most uh, influential person in having Title IX become a a part of representation of the, um, or affecting athletics, would also be disappointed that we're still not there. And we're still talking about not being completely Mm Um, you know, following the law of Title IX 50 mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is amazing. When I look back at my career, the changes that have happened, no other time I don't think in the next 50 years is going to be able to change this much. When you were playing at Northern Iowa, that was still the AIAW era, wasn't it? It was until my senior year yeah. in 1982. That's when the NCAA took over AIAW. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, you know, um, yes, we started having NCAA championships and such. Mm-hmm. But um, you're right. I was in the AIAW, and, and it was um, 
very apparent the discrepancies between men's and women's basketball. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that it's not as apparent today as it was then because it, it was it was really not very good. I mean, from us having a lesser practice facility, lesser practice times, one set of practice uniforms, the guys had many. We were given one pair of Brooks tennis shoes to last the whole year. Uh, we traveled in vans. The men had buses. We slept four in a room. They had two in a room. Um, you know, we never, uh, over Christmas break, the men would get meal money and, and places to stay. And we didn't, we had to provide our own meals and provide our own places to stay. So it, it's, it's uh, amazing the differences just from, you know, the 80s to now. In the last 40 years, what has happened? What? What would you like to see done more of? That, that's terrible English. I'm sorry. That's why I teach history and not English and, and not grammar. But, uh, but what more can be done? Uh, like you said, there's been great strides, but we've got a ways to go yet. There's, there's still things that can be done. Uh, what are some areas that, that you would like to see addressed? Well, it really it's become more of um, less opportunity, although the opportunities are still not completely there for women um, matching men. But it's really now the services that they're given, it's more like um, how much is spent on recruiting, how much is spent on travel, um, you know, coaches' salaries, those type of things. Um, are where the discrepancies are really lying now. Um, and I'm just thrilled, you know, I'm at the University of Iowa, and this is a place that really was almost the birthplace of Title IX. It sure mm-hmm. was a place where it, it started to grow the strongest. So I've been at a place that has been way ahead of its time as far as Title IX. But I look at nationally, and even like what happened at the women's basketball tournament last year that's been well documented. In the bubble? You know, and how AA has not been supporting women's basketball all of these years. And, um, you know, here we are 50 years later. And, you know, in year 49, it was just unbelievable how poorly they were supporting women's athletics over men's basketball. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't it just this year they made a big hullabaloo that the officials were getting paid just as much for the NCAA tournament games as the men were? And I, I, there was a couple other things that – and again – Better late than never, but golly, you know, <laughs> this is far far too late in 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 my opinion that that it that it should have been moved along quicker. Uh, that, that, that's that's my opinion, and and, and I'm sure you agree with me. Ability to use March Madness, and they said that was because that's been a term that women basketball could not use that was only being used for men's basketball and not women's basketball. So they finally gave us the ability to use March Madness, and they thought that was the biggest thing ever. But where I saw the biggest improvement this year, um, and, and I was really pleased with this because it's something I've been talking about for a long time, is we went from 64 teams to 68 teams to match the men's opportunities in NCAA tournaments. And the men have had 68 uh, in the tournament for years. We've had 64. You think, oh, that's only four teams. Well, that's 60 student athletes that are not getting the ability to participate in a national tournament, 60 women that were not getting the opportunity to compete for a national championship like the men. And that's four women's basketball coaches that are, you know, maybe being fired because they're not in the NCAA tournament or maybe not getting raises or contract extensions because they are not in the NCAA tournament. So it was a big deal Mm -hmm. to include 68 instead of 64. And I'm glad that we made that change this year. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, Coach, you are from Iowa. We're both Iowans, native Iowans. And we grew up in a state where, especially in the sport of basketball, women were equal to, and in in some cases, in some small towns, probably greater than uh, the guys. Now, like you said, it was a different type of game. It was was six on six. Uh, Let's take a stroll down memory lane here. And and for folks that don't know a whole lot about six on six basketball, uh, let's take a couple minutes and explain it to them. What uh, I'll let you lead, and and then I'll I'll chime in a little bit if I if I if something jogs my memory uh, from the old six on six game. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, thinking that was the only way that women were able to play basketball for the most part. Um, you know, we started playing basketball in this state in the 1920s, which is incredible mm-hmm. to think that we were having competitive tournaments. And again, that goes back to show you like how progressive the state of Iowa was for you know, giving opportunities for girls to play sport. Um, now they were playing in skirts and dresses, but that's 
another story. Uh Um, You know, they thought that women couldn't play the five-on-five game like men, so we played a six-on-six version, or basically a three-on-three half-court version, Mm -hmm. and a version that allowed you to have two dribbles, and you either played only offense or only defense, and you only ran from half-court to the basket and back. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't think that we could kind of handle going up and down the court all the time. Uh, and uh, the guards couldn't touch the ball unless you were inside the, the, the lane. And so it was a really high-scoring game mm-hmm. because the court so spread out. And, I mean, three-on-three, three, you know, there's just less congestion than five-on-five. Five. Um, and it was a fast-paced game because the officials actually moved the ball up the court after a made basket, and not the players. Um, so there was no full-court pressing or anything like that that was going on. Um, to kind of slow down the, the ball moving up the floor. Um, and girls got really good at shooting the basketball. I mean, Absolutely. there was like yep. in our state that would, that would score 100 points in a game. Uh-huh. Uh, Jan, and then we've already talked about, you know, led the country in scoring her, her senior year at like 66 points a game. That was her average. She scored 105 points in one game. So it was an exciting style. And so there was so many benefits of this. It wasn't directly compared to the boys, but we also weren't giving our women an opportunity to get ready to play at the college level if they indeed wanted to play at the college level. And that's why in 1995, uh, we started changing, and the big schools started changing first mm-hmm. uh, to 5 5. And in 1993, we had the last six on six girls state basketball tournament. And the last Miss Iowa six on six was Lisa Brinkmeyer, who went on to play for me at Drake university. And, um, you know, some of those six on six women, they loved that game. And it yep. was a very, fun, and, you know, like you say, Marty towns were just flock. I mean, especially the small towns, they yep. would just flock to these girls basketball games. Well, and the, the state tournament, uh, was, Straight out of Hoosiers, there were it was a one class tournament. Uh, for folks that don't know a lot about the history of Iowa girls basketball, uh, you know you would have. I, I distinctly remember uh, Lynn Lorenzen from Ventura, and I believe sure. they they played. It might have been like West Des Moines Dowling or West Des Moines Valley. I mean Ventura, the whole town only had like six or seven hundred people in it, and West Des Moines Valley's student body was probably 3,000 people, and, uh, you know, they ended up winning the state championship in 86 or 87. I mean, Lynn was kind of the the Iowa version of Jimmy Chitwood leading the small town to uh, to a great championship, and it was, it was pageantry. It was only 16 teams. You had to win about well, what twenty five games just to get just to get to the state yeah. tournament? You know, it was this. You, you literally, but I, I joke, but you had to win probably six or seven games just to get to the state tournament, and then you had to win another four games at the state tournament to win a state championship against every single uh, team in the state. So uh, a lot of pageantry with it, a lot of tradition with it. Uh, folks went kicking and screaming uh, with this whole five on five thing. Uh, as the head coach, and, I, and I'm sure. Uh, you know, Coach Fenley feels this way at Iowa State. Tanya Warren feels this way at, at, at Northern Iowa. And I'm sure, you, you know, you, uh, with the tradition of Iowa girls basketball, uh, do you feel like you guys are a little bit of the, the caretakers of the game, representing kind of the original state for, for girls slash women's basketball competing at a high level in such a historic fashion? Yeah, I do think that, um, I don't know that if we're the care caretakers or not, I'm not sure. I, I do believe that um, the women that played that game, you know, now they are mothers and grandmothers, and they had such joy from playing that game that I think that's why we have such great participation in this state of, of athletics is because their moms and their grandmas and, you know, maybe even their great grandmas were able to play this game. And so I think the enthusiasm has just been handed down because of the tradition of um, having athletics in this state for such a long time. Coaches are absolutely loving are taking over a new program booklet. As many of you know, I spent two years outside of coaching. And during that time, I hung a note card in my workspace at school that said, strip the house down to the studs. I took that time to really rethink and reorganize my thoughts on what it takes to run a transformational program. As I prepared for the possibility of coaching again, I organized these thoughts into this 96-page booklet. How much do I trust this booklet? I used this booklet as I went on interviews to help sell myself 
and my vision for what my new program would look like. If I'm using it to sell myself, why wouldn't I recommend it to you, my listeners? This booklet will help you look at any part of your program, no matter what stage you're at in your program, and help improve it in some way. It's all yours for only $15, which includes shipping and handling. For more information, email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Coach, at this time, we kind of transition. Uh, we are going to share, or I'm going to share, uh, our John Wooden quote of the day. And I'll give you a chance to, to, to listen to it. And, and if you would like to respond to it or, or expand upon it, uh, feel free to do so. We, we take the John Wooden quote out of Wooden's book, Wooden, A Lifetime of Observations. And so, Lisa, are you ready for the, the John Wooden quote of the day? I love it. I can't wait to hear it. All right. From page 146 of Wooden, A Lifetime of Observations, the John Wooden quote of the day is, It goes back to what my dad used to say. If you get caught up in things over which you have no control, it will adversely affect those things over which you do have control. And I think sometimes that's the hardest thing we have as coaches is we worry so much about the things that we can't control that we lose focus on a lot of the things that we can control. And I know that's one thing I've tried to be better at as I've gotten older is just focus on what we can control and, and let's take care of the stuff that we can control. That's that's what I interpret when I hear that quote, Coach. Uh, where would you like to take it? Yeah, we, we preach this to our team all the time, control the controllables. And, you know, there, we, we actually will take an exercise where we'll list them on the blackboard. We'll list, um, or whiteboard now, uh, you, you write, write down all the things that we can control. You know, we can control our effort, our attitude, you know, our practices. Um, learning our plays, doing our scouting films. Um, what can't we control? Officials, fan support, you know, traveling and playing on the road and having a hostile environment. Um, so we all write down all these things. And so our team is very well aware of what they can control and what they can't control. And I don't want them, we say it all the time, control the controllables. If you're starting to bark at an official, um, I do believe that's my job a little bit is to protect my team through that. Yep. Uh, but I don't want players to be doing that. I want my players to focus on what they can control. Again, being a good at teammate, their effort, their attitude, those, the things, the next play, focusing on the next play. So I love that quote by John Wooden and, um, I was fortunate to spend time with Coach Wooden uh, back at Drake when he came to town for the boys' McDonald's All-American team, and he spent about an hour with us in the, in the Drake women's basketball locker room. And then I just met his grandson and his son-in-law this past April when I took Caitlin Clark out to L.A. for the John Wooden Awards and uh, got to spend some time with them as well. So uh, John Wooden, um, class among among, uh, I mean, he is in a class among, alone. Yes, absolutely. I really like what you said there about the officials. And, and again, as you get older, I think you, uh, just like with anything else, you, you get better at, at working with officials. And one of the things I've really tried to, to, to do well at, to do better at, and, and again, I fail at it from time to time, but I tell my players, you know, don't worry about the officiating. If I do get on the officials, I'm only getting on them for one reason, and that's to protect you guys and to protect you as players. Uh, if, if I really feel like there's a really obvious missed call and it has a drastic effect on the game, then I'm going to say something to the officials. Or if I feel like they're not being consistent and you're not uh, getting the fair shake, then I'm going to say something. But overall, right. we try not to say too much to officials. Uh, we try to move forward because all of that stuff, it's kind of like the old Seinfeld episode. It usually kind of evens itself out by the end of the ball game. Uh, but I, that's that's what I've tried to and and I think it's good, like you said, Coach. I think it's good that you communicate that with your players. Of if I do talk to the officials, here's the circumstances or reasons why I would be doing so. Uh, is mm -hmm. is that a talk that you have? Is no, I was agreeing with Artie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Um, nope. Let's uh, let's jump into your philosophy a, a little bit, Coach. Uh, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, I was really excited to talk to you about, is, is offensive basketball. Obviously, especially the last few years, you guys uh, at, at the University of Iowa have done a terrific job of scoring the basketball in a variety of different ways. Uh, we had the opportunity to bring our team over to Nebraska a couple of years ago uh, when uh, 
Megan Gustafson was a senior, I believe. Um, and uh, I, I believe that's, that's when it was. So we got to see it live and in person. Uh, and, and so I, I'm going to ask you, coach, uh, do you want to talk about your full court philosophy first or your half court philosophy first? Um, I mean, I think we start with the full court. I mean, we want to score. I mean, I, I think that the players like to play this way and fans like to watch it. And so, Again, it probably goes back to my six-on-six six, uh, roots of, you know, playing fast basketball and scoring the ball a lot. But we were uh, second in the country and scoring at 86 points a game this year. Um, and that's because, you know, we get out and run and we enjoy that style of basketball. We'll shoot open threes um, out of transition. Some people don't like to do that, but we will shoot open threes because, you know, you can work the ball for a whole lot of time on a 30-second shot clock and still – maybe not have that good of a shot. Um, but we will try to get the ball inside to our post running the, running the paint first. I mean, we try to get our posts out and running uh, and trying to beat their big down the floor because an uncontested layup is the highest percentage shot in basketball, and that's what we're going to take first and foremost. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, do you, uh, what do you teach? So let's go with that full-court philosophy. Uh, what are you teaching? Uh, what's kind of your, your, your scheme when it comes to that, if you don't mind talking about that? How do you implement that into practice? What are maybe a, a, a couple of drills, if you're willing to share that? What are a couple of drills that you guys have in practice that you work on on a consistent basis to help emphasize pushing the tempo, getting those rim runners out, getting your shooters wide? Uh, how how do you implement that with that? I, I threw about five questions at you at once there, Coach. I apologize. So I'll just I'll just kind of let you cook here, and if something pops into my head, I'll I'll try to politely interrupt you and 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 try to clarify it. Yeah. No. I um. I mean, first of all, we really believe in getting our outlet um, up and up the floor, up and wide up the floor. A lot of people you'll see them they're getting the outlet in the paint. Well, you're already at a disadvantage if you get the outlet in the paint. So. Our goal is to try to get the outlet around the hash mark or higher uh, and, and pass the ball. You know, we all know the pass is quicker than the dribble. So, you know, get that ball up the sideline. If somebody is open ahead of you, get the ball up the sideline ahead of them. Um, you know, we believe in uh, a sideline break more than coming down the middle of the floor. Um, I, I think everybody in transition, they kind of tend to go back to the basket or the center of the floor and they leave the sides pretty free so that's a great way to be able to bring the ball up the floor um you know we work on it in practice very basically and we use it as a warm-up drill most of the time is that we'll go five on oh and we'll have five women running a circle underneath the basket and we'll have a guy you know throw the basket either make or miss um and then run five on zero down and and we'll talk about you know okay we're going to make the pass for the for the three we're going to make the pass down the sideline and get it into the post um, we're going to now we can't make the pass on the sideline. So we're going to bring the ball up, uh, up the floor ourselves on the dribble and receive a ball screen from the trail. Um, so we just go, go through all those situations as warm up and practice and five on zero. But I, I think what makes us a little bit more effective is really getting that outlet high and wide. And also that we run a positionless point guard break. And what I mean by that is my one, two or three can really be an outlet for us. And so I, um, you know, I don't assign one person to only be the outlet. Now, in saying that, you know, I have a guard like Caitlin Clark, who's probably one of the best point guards in America, who does want the ball in her hands a lot and demands the ball in her hands a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, our, our, we're not quite running as, as much positionless as I'd like to right now. Um, but she's awfully good with the ball in her hands, so I'm not going to argue with that too often. <laughs> but um, if you have one person that always brings the ball up, it's really easy, I think, for a team to press you because uh, they know exactly who's bringing it up, where they're going to get the ball. Uh, it's pretty simple to put on a press. But if you get the ball out quickly um, and you get it up past the hash mark, it's really hard to press. It, mm-hmm. it is very difficult to press, and now everybody's just trying to retreat and get back. And I think that can give you a rebounding advantage at times. Mm-hmm. What... Uh... What are some some different things that you've seen people try to do to try and slow down your offensive transition, especially after makes? Uh, do, you, do you have people that try to jam those outlets and, and try to smother that real quick? 
Uh, like you said, do you see people sending, instead of sending two or three people to the glass, they're only sending one person to the glass and sending four back? Or uh, And then how, or is there anything that you do to counteract those uh, those teams that are trying to slow down that transition in case there's, uh, I'm sure there's listeners that would like to do what you guys do schematically and push in that tempo. So what are some of your counters to the opponent's counters? Right. So, um, you know, the first thing is, is that people will try to deny your outlet pass. So we like to have two outlet passes because it's really hard to deny both of them. And if I don't know what side they're going to go to, my, my opponent certainly doesn't know what they're going to do. Um, again, by getting up a little bit higher, if they want to deny that pass, and if I get my outlets up to the hash mark, I mean, now we simply break forward two steps. And now if they continue to deny, we're going over the top of them. And, you know, that is very effective for making people get, when you beat them over the top, all of a sudden now they don't want to be in front of you. They don't want to be denying you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they just are trying to deny for, per se, Caitlin, uh, one person, we're definitely going to go to our other outlet person and then run Caitlin through the center of the floor because now that defender is, in, is, is behind Caitlin as she cuts up the floor. So um, there's you know a lot of things you can do like that. As long as you are getting that outlet high, there's a lot of things you can do. Mm-hmm. What are you... Uh... What are you teaching your point guard? What's what's their reads as they're coming up? Like with us, I teach my point guards to to read it left to right, uh, you know. And in the the traditional sense, we, we look to the three first. If that's not there, we look to the rim runner uh, second, and we can always go up the sideline to the shortest pass to the two on. We we go up the right side pretty consistently, coach. Uh, that's what I preach to my point guards. Uh, is that something that you're doing with your point guards? Uh, how do you, how do you preach that to your perimeter players? Absolutely. The first thing that we want to look up is the sidelines, you know, pass up for that open three or the post running. So if they're taking that away, the next look is you got to be looking at your post because if they're out taking away that sideline pass, that probably means the middle is a little bit more open. So mm-hmm. looking at that middle um, or looking at the weak side as well, um, kind of in that order. And so, you know, you, you're, we kind of go, you know, whatever side you're on, that strong side first and then work toward the other side of the floor. And if nothing's there, then we're going to uh, bring up that basketball ourselves. But we're going to get right into our spacing of our offense, which we run a four out one in. Uh, and we're going to usually start with a ball screen, which I think is one of the hardest things to defend. Um, or or we might just have our guard attack the weak side post. You know, if we're bringing the ball up the floor quickly and everybody's been covered um, and the post is always on the strong side, if they attack, they're going to attack the empty post area. And so that's a great place to be able to try to get to the rim in transition. Mm-hmm. So we get to the point where... You're you're in a five on five situation, but even then, coach, you guys are awfully efficient in in scoring the basketball. Obviously, if you're scoring 86 points a game, you're really efficient with what you do with the basketball. What are some of the things that you and your coaching staff do to teach efficient offense when it comes to shot selection, ball movement? What are some some of the key principles that you and your coaching staff emphasize to your players? Uh, to be as efficient as you have been in offense the last dozen years or so in that half-court area to get the shots that you want? Well, you're right, Marty. We are efficient. We are the number one field goal percentage shooting team in the country. Um, And so our kids understand the difference between a good shot and a great shot. And we're hunting for that great shot. If we cannot score in transition – you know, now we got to put the brakes on, and now we're going to run our offense, and now we're going to hunt for that wide-open shot. So we have kind of identified for every player, what is your money shot? What is the shot that you, you know, I mean, if you have this shot, you need to be putting it up right away. And that's different based on personnel, based on their shot range, uh, you know, their position on the floor. Um, so we meet with our players and say, talk about, okay, this is your money shot. Uh, this is what you need to be looking for all the time. Mm-hmm. But we are, we are, we have a philosophy where our players have bought in that passing the ball, that we attack the rim and pass the ball for the wide open shot. We would always, always, always take a wide open shot um, 
a wide open three or a post move. We try to limit hard twos. We try to limit, you know, pull up jumpers from the free throw line. Um, that's not a, a great shot statistically. So um, we're, we're trying very hard to eliminate those shots and instead be able to attack and pitch. Uh, and that's why we're the best team in the country in assists as well. We we average more assists than anybody else in the country. It, it certainly helps when you have a Monica Sonato inside who leads the country in field goal percentage shooting and Caitlin Clark who leads the country in assists. But they figured it out. I mean, Caitlin knows that she gets the ball into Monica. It's an automatic assist. And if you want to lead the country in assists, <laughs> you better know who's going to put the ball in the hole for you. Um, and so, she, you know, that's her favorite target. And, um, our posts have always been really good. I think at scoring, you, you talked about Megan Gustafson, and you know she was the national player of the year. And I, I, I mean, when your post can score like that, it makes it so much easier uh, because you're going to hammer it in for that easy post move, or you're just going to require a lot more defensive energy on that post, which opens up open threes. And open threes are a whole lot better than contested ones. So um, our our kids just understand. To run the offense, and we really work on proper floor spacing so that the uh, we don't overload a side very often. We really keep the floor balanced because then that spreads the defense out more. And try to teach them, you know, how to attack gaps, how to hunt for real estate when there's like a little bit of a gap um, going to the rim because we want to get to the rim. Um, we want to shoot free throws and you know get the old-fashioned three-point play as well. I think. Mm-hmm. That because we are multidimensional, we can drive and get to the rim and draw fouls. We can get our ball into the post. We can hit open threes. We're a little bit harder to guard. Mm-hmm. When when you're teaching that uh, and you're and you're you're pre, you're you're talking to your players about that, what are some of the? Is it some from some film breakdown? I know some coaches put like the the X's on the floor. Uh, you know, or there's, you know, some people call it the four point line and they put the four point line out there to really emphasize, get behind this line when we're in the half court, especially with, uh, what your program does with like a four outlook and, and getting that spacing out. Uh, what are, what are some of those, you know, within the teaching methods and as you're teaching it, what are some of the little things that you add to your program to, to emphasize those things as teaching tools for your players? Yeah, we definitely use spots on the floor. Um, we start out with really big spots where everybody can see them, and then we kind of migrate into a little maybe taped X. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those really are down for the whole year because we really want to emphasize floor, floor spacing and being in the rock, proper space. We want to emphasize that when you drive, you know exactly where your teammate's going to be. So if you're never in trouble, you always know where your passing angles are going to be, who's going to be open. And we talk a lot. I mean, when you, when we, somebody drives, we always have somebody, um, we call it circling, circling to the natural pitch angle. And we always have somebody safety behind and they'll yell. If you watch our team, they'll yell circle, they'll yell safety um, because they're yelling where their positions are to also let that uh, person who drove, if they're in trouble, they know automatically through repetition, 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 and also hearing them that exactly where they're going to be. Want to know more about a pen and a napkin and all the resources it offers? Go to a pen and a napkin.com, a great resource for any coach at any level. In addition to our A Pen and a Napkin University video library options that are available to order, we have hundreds of pages of notes, from one-page handouts to book breakdowns to original coaching notes. We also have coaching links, a full catalog of every A Pen and a Napkin podcast, and ways to contribute to the growth of A Pen and a Napkin. Apenandanapkin.com is a coaching resource that will help you become a better coach. Coach, you have been really blessed, especially the last four or five years. Uh, we talked about uh, Gustafson. Obviously, you're coaching Caitlin right now. Uh, Kathleen Doyle was another terrific player that you've had recently. Uh, you know, coaching coaching great players is, is a tremendous privilege. Uh, but what are some ways, you know, with, with a Caitlin, with a Megan, with a Kathleen, any of the other great players that you've coached, as their coach, what are ways that you have in practice or within games continued to challenge them in your role as their head coach? How do you continually move those goalposts to push for those players to continually 
improve themselves. Now, and most of these kids are going to be intrinsically motivated. They want to be the best that they possibly can be. But how do you find ways to to challenge your players as their head coach to to give them even more challenges to kind of keep pushing them to where they want to be and, and, and your role in pushing those those great players into the, the highest level they can possibly be? Yeah, you know, we meet with our players after every season and kind of tell them their strengths and their opportunity areas. We don't call them weaknesses. We call them opportunity areas because mm-hmm. we want them to look at something that they want to really improve on. So, you know, this year after the season, you know, Caitlin Clark had a whole page of strengths, but she had as equally as many opportunity areas where we think she can get better. So it's continuing to find the challenge, right? Continuing to try to improve their game and find different ways that it can be improved. And, you know, film is a marvelous resource as well. And we really meet with our players after every game and in our individual breakdowns. And I know in high school you don't have the time to do this. I get mm-hmm. that. But, yep. you know, we have position groups, uh, our point guards, our wings, and our, our bigs. Uh, and so there is about four people in every one of those groups, and they'll meet with their position coach after every game and go over film of, you know, their clips that they were in and things they could improve on. Um, because even in a great game, it, this, this game is so it's so hard that even when you play an unbelievably great game, there's still ways to improve. Mm-hmm. And so I think also just having that work ethic of our staff, like us always coming ready to work every day, us after a big win, not taking anything for granted, not letting down, um, you know, instilling that work ethic in them that it's never, you know, it's never quite good enough that we can always get better. Mm-hmm. Does coaching these these quote unquote great players does that help keep you sharp as well, Coach? That you you feel like I've got to come in today and I've really got to find a way to challenge Caitlin. I've got to come in today and I've got to find a way to challenge Megan and and every single one of my players. Is that something that keeps you on top of your game as well? Well, I think it does because you have to keep researching, right? Like you know, you get a player um, like like Megan and then Caitlin. They're totally different positions, and so now. You know how for years I kind of was more focusing on how do I get my ball inside? You know, how do I create opportunities? Now I'm trying to create opportunities for a point guard. And so, you know, it's watching film on Sabrina Nescu or or somebody like that or Mm -hmm. Steph Curry and like finding out ways to get um, to to, to get them to be able to be their best, to give them the opportunity to be their best by what we create on the floor. So. You know, I think there's always opportunities. The game's always changing, too. It's yeah. always, People are smart. They're always coming up with new things. And so it's fun because now with the Internet, you can get so much information. With Synergy, you get so much information. Mm-hmm. What is, is it a challenge sometimes where you have, especially a ball-dominant perimeter player like Caitlin, where mm-hmm. you know you, you want to turn the game over to, to her and let her do her thing? You know, and right. just you know, okay, I I trust you, but but there's also that that there's there's times where it's like okay, we don't need to try and force that, or hey, let's let's get this thing spinning a little bit more, and you don't need to do this or that or the other thing. I'm just kind of thinking of this off the the cuff here, Coach. Uh, but you know, kind of when you when you have somebody as ball dominant as Caitlin is, how do you how do you let her do her thing? but yet continue to emphasize keeping everybody else involved. And, I, and I'm, not, you know, I'm not saying that Caitlin is a selfish player or anything like that, because she's not. She's a magnificent passer. I've seen her play many, many times. But th- there is that, okay, do your thing, but we still got to do our thing. It, 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 does that question make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it is 100% a fine line you have to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell my team, I want to control her flame but i don't want to burn it out i I don't want to cover up because part of what makes her great is her ability to think like her confidence and her ability to do things that other people can't do in the game her vision of the game her shooting range um her ability to attack the basket i mean she does things that really aren't being done in women's basketball as to that level right now so i do not want to take that away from her but I also can't have her taking every single shot mm-hmm. because then it's easy to guard. And, and yep. she's smart enough to understand that. Um, she's still learning clock management, you know, and how to use that, you know, when to take that long shot. You know, 
I, I don't mind her taking a few early, but we'd rather her save those for the end of the shot clock or the end of a quarter. Um, or, you know, if, if she's really in that zone and feeling it, I'm going to let her take it. But we're also trying to ask her, look, at, let's hunt for your teammates early. Mm-hmm. You know, you led the country in assists last year, and that's great. Let's, I'm trying to challenge Caitlin with averaging a double-double in assists mm-hmm. and points. And you know she's going to get her points. That's easy. Yeah. So now it's the assists are the hard part. She averaged eight per game last year, number one in the country. To average ten, that's a whole big, that's a big jump. That's yep. a lot. That is hard to do. But I want her to try to average a double double. In order for her to do that, she has to hunt for her assists early because she knows she's going to get those points. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's a great intrinsic uh, and tangible goal that you could put in front of her. Just, hey. Be the first to to ever do that. It was it, Trey Young did that on the men's side a few years ago when he was at Oklahoma that one year. I don't know. I don't know if anybody has done that in uh, Division One women's basketball. Is has, has that ever been done before, Coach? To your knowledge? I don't, don't know, and I really need to look that up. I'm going to actually write that down because I'm going to look it up. Well, you're welcome, Coach Bluter. You're welcome. <laughs> there we go, <laughs> um, Coach. Last thing here. Uh, you know, last year, uh, not to drudge up too many negative memories, but he, he, great regular season, win the Big Ten tournament, you're hosting uh, the, the regional, and you, you have a really, really tough loss at home uh, to uh, a peaking Creighton team at the time, who who then went on and beat Coach Fenley's Iowa State team. You know, so you know Creighton was playing really, really good basketball at the end of the season last year, and uh, yeah. I, I know that that. Uh, that was a really, really uh, tough loss on on everybody involved with the program. Uh, how is how is you how have you and your staff tried to take uh, such a, a a tough loss, a tough way to end the season, and try to to keep the Hawkeyes moving forward and maybe use that as a little bit of a fuel going into the off season and, 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 and maybe a little bit extra in that weight room in the off season, a, a few, uh, you know, 50 more jump shots in, in the workouts. How have you kind of, how, how have you and your staff tried to take that, that, that negative situation and turn it into a positive for the upcoming season? Absolutely. You know, we, we keep saying what deprives you drives you. And, you know, we were deprived of getting to the Sweet 16 last year, and we lost to an excellent Creighton team. Uh, and, and Jim Flannery is a friend of ours. And, you know, I, I if I'm going to lose to somebody, I want to lose to somebody that I respect, oh, yeah. that does it the right way, and Flan does that. And Absolutely. so if you lose and you hate it more than anything, at least you lost to somebody you respect mm-hmm. and uh, somebody that was playing really, really well at the time. So. I was happy for Jim and his and his team, um, but yeah, I mean, we're driven by that. You know, I don't know how many times we've only had four practices so far this summer, but how many times already that that game has come up? Like we were talking about boxing out, and uh, you know, it's about wall and rebounds on three point shot or shooters, and we're saying, think Creighton, you guys, think Creighton. Let's box out, let's make contact outside the paint more so that those balls don't go over our head. Um, and so, there's just great ways that we can. You know, continue to bring that up, and we we will continue to use it because if you don't use it, it's just a loss. Mm-hmm. But if you use it to motivate you, if you use it to learn, you know, then it can be a beneficial loss. Mm-hmm. Well, and and only one team truly goes away really, really, really happy at the end of the season, and and we all know that that's just the way this this goofy little game of ours works. But uh, you know, hopefully, it's something that that you and your program can use to to push yourself to to another level and, and and continue to take more and more steps in the postseason and unfortunately that's the last taste in, in everybody's mouth uh but it shouldn't it shouldn't diminish everything that that you and your program did last year that was just uh another level and uh you know coach i i, I wish you nothing but the best going into the, the to the rest of the summer and uh good luck next season so um uh, Coach, any social media that you want to plug for yourself or the program? Well, you know, I'm not as good on social media as I should be, but we do have a really good website, HawkeyeSports.com, and also our women's basketball Instagram. 
they do such a great job with uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, Jan Jensen's a lot better at, at, than I am. I think she's GoIowa.com or whatever. I, again, I'm uh, not the best. I'm trying to get better because I understand the value of it. Um, but, you know, I just want to go back to my, what you said about the end of the season. I, that's exactly what I told my, at the banquet, you know. We, there's 359 Division One women's basketball programs. Only one of them goes home happy. Um, and and I, that's a pretty cruel sport to be put in. It's a real cruel position to be put in. But at the same time, I don't want anything to take away from what we did accomplish last year. The first time ever in Iowa women's basketball history to win both a Big Ten regular season title and a Big Ten tournament. And we blew the NCAA attendance record out of the water Uh Last three games here in Carver Hawkeye Arena sold out 15,000 fans. Um, you know, it just, it was an amazing year. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of the young women on our team. As well you should be, Coach. As well you should be. Uh, coach Lisa Bluter, the head women's basketball coach at the University of Iowa. Uh, coach, I know how crazy busy your life is. And I, I just can't thank you enough for your time uh, this afternoon. And, and I, I wish you. Absolutely nothing but the best. I I hope you had a good time on the podcast. I did, Marty. It was great talking with you, and uh, I wish all your listeners the best. And I have to always say at the end, go Hawks. (laughs) I think I've heard that once or twice before in my life. Uh, So, uh, Coach, if you can hold the line real quick, I just got to wrap up a couple of things here. Uh, Again, Lisa Bluter, head women's basketball coach at the University of Iowa. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Of course, we want to thank our founding sponsor, COSAC Chiropractic, uh, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter, add a pen and a napkin. We try to put out daily coaching tidbits on the Twitter Twitter handle, so check that out. Download, rate, review this podcast. Give us five stars. Questions, comments, suggestions, or ideas, email me, a pen and a napkin at gmail.com, and check out a pen and a napkin.com. Uh, we got thousands of, of pages of, of coaching notes and information for you to check out there. Again, episode number 133, Lisa Bluter terrific to have uh, just an awesome opportunity to have her on the podcast can't thank her enough for her time coaches as always let's be sure to hone our craft one day at a time